You are listening to the Life Point Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Drew Meyer. For more information about other Life Point Church resources, please visit www.livethemessage.org. Hey, let's go after this morning. Colossians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. Colossians chapter 2, we're continuing our series through the book of Colossians. As we feel like God's putting on our heart this anthem that we are ready. We're ready in Christ. The gospel does not leave you deficient. What Jesus did on the cross through his resurrection, by the, through the sending of his Holy Spirit, equips you for today, not just some future day. We're eliminating excuses. We're, lim- we're eliminating anything that would cause us to sit idly by and live in passivity. Instead, we're pushing forward saying, okay, Christ readies me for today. Anything he calls you to today, he's equipping you for in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Kingdom of heaven is at hand, and you are a citizen of that kingdom. Holy Spirit lives in you, and he's equipped you to fulfill the callings upon your life. So here we are towards the end of Colossians chapter 2. We're just kind of working our way verse by verse through this beautifully rich book. Have you guys been enjoying the book of Colossians as we've been going through it? Three of you, awesome. Four, including me. So the four of us are enjoying and we're being edified and encouraged, and hopefully the rest of you this morning will be encouraged and edified as well. Our aim for this morning is to free ourselves from the fear of man. I believe God wants to set us free from the fear of man, from being subject or captive to everyone's expectations, everyone, everyone's opinions over our life. Instead, having our hearts set on one thing, pleasing God, glorifying him with our lives. I want to see us as a church break free from the fear of others, fear of what other people think about us. Because here's the reality at the heart of this series of messages is the reality we believe God is calling us to something great, not to the status quo, not to just survival mode, keeping the lights on. We believe God is calling us to something great. I mean, in Kyle Barnes, as he shared this morning, I mean, he was echoing the, the heart of what God's been stirring in our heart as of late. But there's something that accompanies any great move of God, anything great that God is calling you to, or anything great that God does in a group of people, there's something that accompanies it, and it's called opposition. It's called the fact that some will not like it. Some maybe who are even sitting here this morning, their feathers will be ruffled so much they're like, I don't want anything to do with this. You guys are... You guys are off the rails with this. And I'm going I'm to balance it with the, the, the um, accountability of community that keeps us centered. But there is, there's a, a, a crossroads that comes upon any believer, any follower of Jesus. We have to check the pride at the door and say, I care about one opinion. It's the opinion of God. It's God's opinion over my life. So I want you to ask yourself that question. How would your life look differently if the number one driving opinion in your life was the opinion of heaven, God's opinion over your life, how would your life look differently? This is our heritage in the church. As you open up the book of Acts, this, this beautiful history of the, the church in its beginnings, in its infancy stages. It's not a perfect church back then. There's not a perfect church now. They had their issues But one thing they were intimately familiar with was opposition. 
They had amazing breakthroughs in some ways, great moves of God, the miraculous, thousands coming to know him every single day, those being saved. But at the same time, they had great opposition. They were persecuted beyond what we are familiar with. And it's this phrase in Acts chapter 5, which gets repeated throughout the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, verse 29, it says, we must obey God rather than men. So Peter and the apostles stand before the religious leaders, and they say, hey, we respect you, we love you, but we're going we're, we're gonna to obey God and not man on this one, as they're telling him to not proclaim the, the, the love of Jesus, not proclaim the cross and the, the, the messiahship of Jesus. Thanks for the opinion, but we're going to obey God on this one and not you. And there's, there's a crossroads that, that comes upon any true devoted follower of Jesus where you're going to ruffle some feathers anytime you're contending for something beyond the status quo. There's going to be, there's going to be some people who have an issue with it. There has to be a heart check, a gut check that says, I'm going to obey God rather than man. So let's look at Colossians chapter 2, the context of this entire book and very specifically what Paul's referencing here is this some some of the influencers or believers in the church were teaching certain followers of Christ that there were other things that they needed to do to to follow Jesus it wasn't just the sufficiency of the cross and his resurrection but there were other requirements for the old testament that they had to adhere to there were some that were saying hey you need to worship angels and Jesus is just is just an exalted angel there were some that's, that were saying, you're really not a devoted follower of Jesus unless these spiritual, these, these uh, really profound spiritual manifestations are alive in your life, or unless you do these, these radical acts of devotion, like you fast for a week, then you're a true follower of Jesus. And Paul is, is pushing them to fix their eyes on Jesus in the midst of that. So let's, let's see how he, how he encourages them. He says in verse 16, therefore... Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And it's important anytime we read that word, therefore, to look at what it's referring to prior to that word. And, and he was just pointing them to Jesus' work in their life. Remember, remember last week that Jesus forgives us. He cancels our debt. He saves us from the old you. He sets us apart. He fills us. And he, and he uh, overcomes the enemy. Those are all the things that we saw in that prior passage in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. And so he said, in light of that, in light of the sufficiency of Christ's work, do not let anyone pass judgment on you in regards to these traditions. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. They're not completely irrelevant. We'll talk about that in a moment. The Old Testament, we don't throw out the first 39 books of the Bible. They have a context it's Christ is the substance of it. In verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without, without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, capital H. That's Jesus Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, 
and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There's three passages in, or three phrases, clauses in here that, that Paul says that I want us to focus on is we're going to allow God's Holy Spirit to work in our lives to free us from the fear of man, from the fear of others over your life. As you walk out of here, there'll be a fresh boldness, motive, a deeper motivation in your heart to do the right thing, not to please your neighbor or your spouse or whoever or any of us in this place, but to please heaven. And it says, freedom from the fear of others is found in the fear of God. Freedom from the fear of others is found in the fear of God, which may sound paradoxical or just replacing one fear with another fear, but that phrase, the fear of God, is something that, that Paul captures here in one way or another that I want us to highlight. The fear of God. It's a biblical concept found throughout Scripture. And you can think of the fear of God as this, as an awareness or consciousness of God. And the book of Proverbs says, the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. Why is that? Because if in a moment, if you live consciously aware of God in your life in that moment, would you not act more wisely? Would you not act differently? You'd be pretty conscious about your decisions if like Jesus is right here and you're like, Okay, I'm going to do the right thing right now. That's why it's the beginning of wisdom. It's the fear of God. So it's not being afraid of him, like fear and trepidation. Erdman's Bible Dictionary literally says a manifestation of respect and worship. That's what the fear of God is. It's a manifestation of worship and respect. So how often in our lives do we live you know, completely oblivious to God, and it is really an offense to his reality in our life? I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm just calling it like it is. And so, so often when we live captive to other people's opinions and expectations, whether they like us or they don't like us, you know, we're, we're, we're really living oblivious to God's reality. But when we understand his, we're consciously aware of his reality in a moment, the fear of God is washing over us. We live differently. And it's that opinion that motivates us, that, that compels us, that drives us, and we're set free. And so there's, there's three phrases here in Colossians chapter 2 where Paul points to this, to the fear of God. One is this, let no one pass judgment on you. In regards to those additional requirements of salvation, he says, let no one pass judgment on you. Why is that? Because Jesus is our judge. Something Paul is adamant about in his letters, in the book of Acts, we also see him preach that in many different contexts. That Jesus is appointed as the judge over humanity, over both the righteous and the unrighteous. It's not something often talked about, but each and every soul on the planet, each and every person in this place will stand before Jesus as judge. Even if he's your savior, you'll stand before him as judge. It might be news to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. And he goes on to, to exhort his uh, mentee, Timothy. In light of the fact that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead, we live with this awareness of the, the repercussions of our decisions in a moment. And it's that opinion of the judge that compels us, that motivates us. He repeats a similar thing, a similar phrase in Acts chapter 17, that descriptor of Jesus as judge. And a few years prior, he wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. 
And he refers to this day, capital D, Judgment Day, when each and every person will stand before Jesus as judge, even for those who are found righteous in him, not because of the works that we do, but because of him, sufficient, I mean, him completely, holy, will stand before him. And it says our works will be judged. And those that are built on him as the foundation will pass through like, like gold passing through the fire. Everything else will be burnt up. We'll have nothing to present to God on that day. So Jesus is our judge. And in one sense, that, that does kind of send a, um, a bit of awe and wonder through us. That fear and trembling, as Peter said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So you're not afraid of him like you're afraid of, of a monster, the boogeyman, or the dark. No, who, who, who God is is who you see in the person of Jesus. You don't have to be afraid of him, but there should be a fearful expectation of him as judge over our lives. And it's this truth that frees us from the fear of others because we're living with this awareness of Jesus as judge. So let me just bring a little bit of clarification to this. This is, you know, when Paul says, do not let anyone pass judgment on you, some of your ears just perk up and you're like, yeah, that's what I've been telling everybody forever. That's like that individualistic pride. Hey, don't judge me. Lift up your finger. Don't judge me. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not lest ye be judged. That is like this generation's favorite verse. Hey, don't judge me. The problem is when people say, do not judge me, they never finish the phrase to describe who they are placing in that seat as judge. Because more often than not, who they're describing as judge of their life is themselves. Hey, don't judge me, lest you be judged. I'm the judge over my own life, but nowhere do we see that in the paradigm of the kingdom. We don't place ourselves on the seat as judge over our lives. Instead, it's Jesus as judge. Also, it doesn't mean that we can somehow go around the accountability that that we receive in community, locking arm in arm with people around us. As I'm calling us to, to not fear the opinion of others, I'm not saying that we disregard others in the church, that we don't lock arms with others and, and accomplish something greater together than we could ever accomplish on our own. There is actually a proper place, but it's completely different than what Paul is referring to here in Colossians. Paul right here is referring to pharisaical, condemning, religious, shaming judgment. That's, what, that's specifically what he's referring to. But there is a place for a certain judgment within the church where we correct one another, we exhort each other, where we push each other towards righteousness. We call each other out. I thank God for brothers, sisters in my life who are willing to speak truth and love. So yes, there's, a, there's some nuance to this. You know, Paul, a few years ago, Earlier, he had to write to the really messed up church in Corinth. Because they, they thought, oh, well, it's not our place to judge anybody, even within the church. We're not even going to judge our own. And it got so out of hand. I mean, it was such a dysfunctional church in terms of the sin that they would allow to run rampant. And so specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says to judge those inside the church. Don't judge those outside the church. Of course, they're going to be sinful and broken. They're going to be pursuing the lust of their heart. But do judge those inside the church, not the pharisaical, 
condemning judgment, but a different sort of judgment that pushes us towards righteousness. And specifically in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, outside, purge the evil person from among you. And he's specifically talking about an individual in their church who was sleeping with his stepmother. And they just allowed this to go on. They found it out, and not only did they find it out, but they just kind of thought, okay, well, he's going to figure it out. And, and he was not repentant in his heart. There's no remorse of the sin that was found out. He just continued on like it was a normal thing as a Christ follower. It's okay for us to be discerning about righteousness and unrighteousness inside the church. But it's with, it's, it's with our heart for redemption. And this had gotten so out of hand that he said, purge this evil person from within you. So he, he doesn't corrupt other people in the church. It is redemptive in that sense. Hey, we're saving the innocent. We're protecting the innocent inside of our church by purging that person outside. They're not really of the flock. So you guys tracking with me with all these caveats and clarifiers? Let no one pass judgment on you because Jesus stands as judge over your life. And specifically as he's referring to um, the traditions of the Old Testament, there were so many that were confused as they read the Old Testament about what still mattered here in the New Covenant. And that's, that's what he's specifically referring to. Don't let anybody pass judgment about, about, about what day you worship on or how you worship or if you follow the new moon festivals and if you, you know, eat food sacrificed to idols, don't let people pass judgment on you regarding those things. And I love what he says. All those things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Anytime you're reading through the first 39 books of the Bible and you're confused, just remember, okay, the substance is found in Christ. I'm not saying I understand the entire Old Testament. There, there's a lot to it. There's some difficult portions to kind of wade through slowly. It feels like you're trudging through the mud, right? You just don't know what to, what to do with some of it. Just remind yourself, ah, oh, the substance belongs to Christ. It's pointing to a better day. It's pointing to a better covenant. So we don't throw it out. There's some movements within Christianity that throw out the first 39 books, say they're irrelevant. Unfortunately, a lot of those same movements, they throw out the Gospels. <laughs> they think it's old covenant. We're not doing that. We're realizing it in context that it's pointing to a better day, a better covenant. If you struggle wading through any of the Old Testament, here's, here's just like a little game plan for you, a little like insider tip. First, read the book of Hebrews. It's an apostolic letter written to Jewish believers, and, and it's beautifully, it just beautifully articulates so much of the fulfillment of the Old Testament through the person of Jesus. First, read the book of Hebrews, and then go back and start wading through the Torah, like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Just try it out sometime. I bet it'll just be jumping off the page to you in a, in a fresh way. Also, last year, we promoted an app called the Read Scripture app. It's an awesome app, which I would highly recommend to anybody that really wants to understand more so God's overarching redemptive story if you feel like you kind of get lost in the minutia of some aspects of the Scripture. The Read Scripture app, you can download it. It's awesome. Second phrase he says, so first he says, let no one pass judgment. Second he says, let no one disqualify. Why? Because Jesus is the one who qualifies us. That's what he had just said the, the chapter prior Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's Jesus 
who qualifies you to be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. Praise Jesus. So every time you sense a, a bit of insecurity in, insecurity in you, a feeling like you, you don't have a place in the kingdom of God, you can set those lies to the side. Anytime you feel caught up in that comparison trap, none of those things qualify. It's Jesus alone who qualifies you. And if you put your faith in him, he's qualifying you for, for a purpose today, for a work today, to do something in the kingdom of God, to contribute And so specifically in this phrase, when he says, let no one disqualify, he's referring to these extravagant spiritual acts, mysticism, kind of um, really extravagant visions and experiences, and radical acts of devotion. That's what he's referring to with asceticism. It's like those people, like those monks, that like they devote their life to certain disciplines. We're just like in awe of them, right? How do they do it? One of our elders this weekend is at a silent retreat. I mean, that's, that takes a lot of gusto and grace upon a person's life to be able to go and set aside time to just be silent. But you care because you haven't experienced those things. God hasn't used you to, um, to carry out certain spiritual acts of the miraculous or the power of God yet. Or just because you haven't been compelled or had the grace in certain moments to fast or to be silent for 36 hours or 48 hours or whatever it is. None of those things disqualify you. It's Christ alone who qualifies you. Let no one disqualify you because it's Jesus who qualifies us. Paul's just referring to what Jesus introduced us to in, in Matthew chapter 7. When he said that day will come, again, capital D, judgment day. When many will come to me, they'll say, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And he said, depart from me, you who do evil, for I never knew you. The basis of relationship in the kingdom of God is, is, is uh, it's rooted in Jesus alone, your covenant relationship with him. It's not on the things that we do. So at, this, at the same token, we don't throw out those acts as irrelevant, as having no purpose, as, as not being real. We have to understand them in their context. They are the byproduct of a godly life. They're not the basis of a godly life. A godly life is found in one place, and it's in Jesus Christ. You have your eyes fixed on him as your savior, as your sufficiency. It's from that place of complete dependence, complete surrender, that God uses a life. And every single person in this place can be used for the miraculous. God will call certain ones of you to, to fast for prolonged seasons, for some, he'll, he'll give you a grace to wake up through the night and pray for something really big. But none of those things are badges of honor in the kingdom of God. They're just the call of, to follow Jesus. They just come along, they come along with the package. Their package deal, it's a byproduct of following him. It's a response. If you're going to walk in, in relationship with him, covenant relationship with him, he's going to call you to do certain things. He's going to call you to step out in the marketplace, in your neighborhood, and believe for the miraculous in a moment. And just because you've never done it before doesn't mean in that moment he has not qualified you. To do the miraculous, to see a healing, to see breakthrough in your family. Don't let anyone disqualify you. And maybe in our day and age, it's, it's you that disqualifies yourself in your head. You think, oh, I'm not as spiritual as, as Drew. I'm not as spiritual as, as my life group leader or whoever it is. 
some other hero in your life. I'm not as spiritual as them. Yeah, I'll just sit kind of over here idly by. God can't use me. Let no one disqualify you, including yourself. Stop disqualifying yourself. I was reminded of, of an instance several years ago of, of an individual that kind of weaseled his way into our Chi Alpha community, and he started coming to one of our small groups, and in very rude ways, he'd interrupt the small group and take them off, off the rails. And he was this religious-minded individual that would say that in order to be saved, you have to prove it by speaking in tongues. That's exactly what Paul's referring to. What's meant to be a byproduct of a life in God, he was, he was intertwining with a requirement for salvation. Let no one disqualify you because your, your neighbor is praying in tongues does not disqualify you from then experiencing something on your own in Christ. You can walk in covenant relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. That's the simple gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. So that same token, for those that are off base with their additional requirements for walking in the kingdom of God, does that make tongues, in that case, tongues irrelevant? No. We echo what Paul said. I, I pray that all of you speak in tongues. But it's not the basis of our relationship with God. It's not a badge of honor. It's the fruit of a godly life. It's, it's the byproduct of walking in relationship and, with him that you, you discover these promises. And here we see a promise that, that Jesus himself promised. It's the promise of the Father. I want that in my life. And then you humbly place your, life, uh, your, your hands out before him and you say, God, I want all that you have. And time and time again, I see people receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They speak in other tongues. But in no way, in no fashion are we going to allow that type of belief to have residence in our church. Jesus alone qualifies us. And thirdly is this, it's self-made religion has no value. He says that in verse 23. Self-made religion has no value because why? Because God deserves all the glory. And God does not share his glory with anyone. Self-made religion glorifies self. That's why man is so attracted to self-made religion. Because it brings, it's, it's man-conscious, it's self-conscious. And it brings glory to ourselves. Titles and accomplishments get propped up. Becomes an idol. But Jesus invites us into a kingdom completely different than any other religious system. And it's completely about the glory of God. A life laid down, not for itself, but for the glory of God, for the for God's pleasure. And here's, I think, the, the paradox of it then. If I'm telling you to, to not care about people's opinion in your life or not fear what other people think about you, I'm not telling you to dis disregard others. I have found that the individuals that love, love God the most, or sorry, love others the most, are those that are driven mostly by the opinion of God more than anybody else. The greatest lovers of people were people who cared what God thought more than what, the, what, than what others thought. So a disregard for the fear of God or for fear of others cannot be a disregard for others. When you're, when you're overwhelmed by the fear of God in your life, his conscious reality, you're walking in awareness of who he is, you will lay down or you will live out a life laid down for others around you. You will li live a life of extravagant love for others. 
And that sort of extravagant love actually does ruffle the feathers of many, especially the religious people. And there's many of those in, in, in the Western world, many people who, who love religious systems. And so when you actually begin to live a life of real selfless love, laid down for others, it ruffles people's feathers. It doesn't fit in their boxes. They think it's reckless. They think it's too risky. They think it's too faith-filled. They think it's too bold. They think it's too courageous. It's too sacrificial. But as I was just doing a survey in me, the head of like church history, that, that idea came to me that those, those heroes of the faith, the ones that we revere now, they were the greatest lovers of others. And at the same time, the testament, the banner of their life was, I want to please God. I want to glorify God with all that I am. They're, they had this audience of one mentality. Just, they just wanted to please God. And in that light, they actually could more accurately, more powerfully love others around them. So the glory of God. When we live for the glory of God, it actually stirs up a pure motivation in our hearts. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. And in that light, as I was kind of recalling so much of church history, I couldn't help but recall the story of David Brainerd. David Brainerd's biography is probably the most influential biography of the last 300 years in terms of influencing Christian leaders. It's probably the most read biography of people that you know, are the heroes of the faith now. You look through their, their own testimonies, their own stories. They say, oh, I picked up this biography of a guy named David Brainerd, his diary, which was left for us. And time and time again, you see heroes of the faith. They're influenced by his story and by his testimony. What's so fascinating about David Brainerd's life, now almost 300 years ago, is the fact that he only lived to the age of 29, and we're still talking about him today. 29 years of gusto of living for the glory of God. That's a real life of impact. He ended up laying down his life for the glory of God for the Native Americans of New Jersey and Delaware. He just couldn't, he couldn't sleep at night with the idea that there were these, these indigenous people of the Americas. He wasn't colonializing them. He wasn't trying to bring them into, into uh, the way of England. He was just trying to usher them into the kingdom of God, and he laid down his life for them. Ended up dying of sickness and disease that he contracted while serving amongst them. But David Brainerd had this way of living for the fear of God that allowed him to live with more sacrifice and selflessness for those around him. And he, but he didn't care what the status quo said, what the establishment said. He was a bright guy, an influential guy. He was a student at Yale. You ever heard of that school? Yeah. He was a student there. Brilliant guy, well-respected student, influencer amongst his peers. And at that time, the Great Awakening, um, an amazing move of God that we still talk about today that still influences us today, was, was rushing across Europe and across the newly discovered um, Americas. And David Brainerd was impacted by it. And he was stirring up the students, saying, wow, God's really doing something in our generation. I want us to be a part of it. God's calling us. And you know, he's stirring up his peers. But the administration, even though Yale was a uh, training grounds for, for ministry and for the church, Yale would have nothing to do with the Great Awakening. They thought they were these, these kind of um, overpassionate, emotional uh, zealots for, for, for Christianity. They thought they were an offense to Christianity. And it led to David Brainerd's expulsion from the school. 
a couple years later, is that really, uh, many people heard about that. Jonathan Edwards, one of the foremost leaders of the Great, Great Awakening and, and a few others decided, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna start Princeton. Because of David Brainerd's expulsion, we're gonna start Princeton because we, we want a, a, a gospel-centered training grounds for Christian workers and for the church. And what's so fascinating is Yale, later Yale recognized their mistake because David Brainerd made such an impact with the Native Americans. Hundreds coming to know Jesus. Just became a hero of the faith, even in his own generation. And they ended up naming a building after him at Yale. The only student to be expelled from Yale that now has a, has a, a hall named after him. David Brainerd Hall is in the School of Divinity in Yale to this day. But the banner over David Brainerd's life was this. My heaven is to please God. It's like his version of Paul saying, to live is to Christ, to die is to gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. My heaven is to please God. So whether that be living in the the, the pleasure of glorifying God sacrificially here and now, or that means I pass away and I'm literally in his presence in heaven, my heaven is to please God. That's living with Uh, the fear of God ruling and reigning and washing over our lives. But everyone stand in this place. I want us to respond to God. I apologize we've gone over. God wants to set some people free this morning. Not some people, but anybody that wants it in their life, he wants to set you free from the fear of others. He wants you to live with a a fresh awareness of his reality in your life. You'd be driven by by one thing. It's the glory of God. Just bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm gonna give a simple response this morning. For those in this place that wanna surrender their lives to Christ, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I wanna give you an opportunity to do that this morning. But secondly, there are some in this place that just really need that, that bondage or that weight of the opinion of others, the expectations of others. You need that to be broken over your life. You need to experience freedom this morning. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. If you're here in this place and you need to surrender your life to Christ, you need to start a relationship with God. Either you've never done that or maybe you have before, but this morning you just know you need to make things right. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, not because I'm going to call you out or embarrass you, just because I want to know who I'm praying for. Would you raise your hand in this place? I want to pray for you. Okay, I didn't see any hands, but if, if you want to receive Jesus this morning, can you make eye contact in the air or raise your hand? Okay. Even if you didn't raise your hand, but this is really the desire of your heart. You can do this anytime, even in your own bedroom. I do challenge you and encourage you to proclaim your faith to to others and to, to tell somebody about the decision you made to follow Jesus. But if you want to make a decision for Christ, pray like this, Lord, this morning I come to the end of myself. I'm turning from finding my sufficiency in myself, my own striving, and I lay myself at your feet as Savior. You are Lord of my life. You are master. No turning back. You are the sufficiency for my sin issue. 
You are the sufficiency for my brokenness. I'm going to stop running. I'm going to run to you. No turning back, Jesus. In your name. Secondly, if you're in this place and you just need to be broken free from the the bondage of the opinion of others, the expectation of others, I want you to take a moment right now and respond to Jesus. I know that's most of us in this place. I mean, I can't imagine that there's really anybody here that's completely walking in freedom in every regard, but just, I'm gonna gift you with an opportunity to respond to Jesus this morning in that regard. There's freedom available. Allow the, the fear of God to wash over you. There's one opinion that matters and it's his. So just respond to him right now. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information about LifePoint Church, please visit www.livethemessage.org.